Hello there, and lovely to have you along with me, Cleon and Ianlun, for another edition of Spoken Stories. This collection is called Creatures of the Earth, after the title of a story and a collection of stories by John McGahern. Each edition features a new story by a writer invited to contribute a story that started out by considering what creatures of the earth might conjure up for them and where it might take them in a story of their own. Previously, Spoken Stories Independence had writers think about what independence could mean, how it could present itself in a new story today, a hundred years after Ireland's War of Independence. John McGahern often referred to the fact that his own parents had experienced that War of Independence at first hand, its turbulence, its repercussions, and how McGahern's generation was the first born into independent Ireland. And so, in its way, Spoken Stories Creatures of the Earth is a natural expansion on its predecessor, Spoken Stories Independence. Together, these stories are a creative contribution to Ireland's decade of centenaries. They illustrate how variously ideas can be interpreted. Here now is Billy O'Callaghan on his story. Uh, The story you are about to hear, um, Old Fires, tells of a man, Jackie the Wire. Uh, who returns to the small rural town where he was born and which he'd left as a young man, desperate to escape the confines of the place and the um, the traumas that it held for him. Now, in middle age, he returns after a life that hadn't really suited him and he's he's trying to find his, his, his way back home, I suppose, in search of sanctuary and maybe to face some of the demons that that have have troubled him. So in the story he steps inside uh, a local pub and the memories come flooding back. All of the what might have beens come to the surface. Uh, Old Fires is is a story of rootedness and belonging to people and to places. How really we're all a confluence of our pasts. We're were shaped by all that went before us, for better and worse. John McGahern's work has long inspired and influenced my writing, to a point where he has become one of my touchstones. I've been reading his novels and stories since my teens, and he is one whose voice resonated particularly deeply with me. Even if his Ireland was a generation or so before my own, its shadows and echoes remain if we look and listen closely. Billy O'Callaghan. And now, Pat Short reads the story Old Fires by Billy O'Callaghan. To reach the bar in Riley's, if you enter by the main door from Ballinraha's main street rather than the small door from the side lane, You had to pass through the lounge, which had always been kept nearly in blackness by day, unless there was enough wintry cold about the air to warrant the lighting of a fire. But this was still only mid-August, a blanched afternoon full of a fresh southerly breeze, the sort of weather fine for harvesting, and with no sign yet of the season starting to turn. For those few chaste heartbeats until he'd adapted to it, Stepping inside was like being struck suddenly blind. All sense of direction was lost and navigation relied solely on pushing ahead until you stumbled over a footstool or caught the corner of a table against your tie. 
Yet, even in his panicked state, he couldn't help but feel thrilled at what the dark did with time. How it peeled away great slices of life. Years. Decades. So that all of a sudden he was a boy again. Seven. Eight years old. Sent by his mother on a mission to ferret out his father. Who he'd heard before seeing. Holding court at the bar. And even at this hour, already stinking of porter, whiskey and piss. A man who milked the cattle of neighbouring farmers dug fields and mended sheds, starting at four so that by early afternoon the day was already his own. On those Sundays after holy hour when Riley's had a crowd in, and he'd sit at the counter and sing, unbidden in a delicate tenor voice, every bit of match for the likes of Joseph Locke or John McCormack. The last rose of summer, or I'll take you home again, Kathleen, and then whatever people ask to hear. He hardly needed to put his hand in his pocket the whole long day for all the drink that came in his direction. Later on, towards midnight, and drunk beyond words, he'd stagger in the door at home, leather belt already doubled over in one hand, all the sweetness and music gone out of him, and looking only to vent his rage, his mind screaming with some imagined slight or cucklery. Jackie! A voice asked, from just beyond his right shoulder. The sound of it singing up at him in a fluty jab. It's never Jackie Dwyer, is it? He stopped and half-turned. A woman of about his own age sat alone, tucked into a booth along the windless wall, on the side that had her facing the counter and with her back to the black-timbered smoked glass double entrance. It is, he said thrown into an honesty he'd not fully planned, feeling the ground all of a sudden loose beneath his feet. Though it's mostly John nowadays. Nobody's called me Jackie in an age. So you're back, are you? Trying to smile, he left that unanswered. The woman was decked in an old-fashioned paisley-patterned dress that, mired in shadow and set against the seat's sullen upholstery, had her camouflage nearly out of existence. Her hair fell in feathery chaos down over her shoulders and chest, bottle-dyed to pitch black and dead of the least sheen, and within its brackets her nose and chin jutted above and below a deep, dark hole of a mouth, seemingly perpetually circled in wonder. He'd been in Ballinraha since late morning, his first time back in twenty years, and had spent the better part of the past hour cooped up in a small first-floor office above the bookmakers with Caniff, the solicitor, going over the papers on a place he was looking to buy. And because the time was just now coming on for three, that part of the afternoon which tended to drag if there wasn't good racing on the television or a decent hand of work to fill it, a tractor engine in need of stripping down or a gate to be hung, he had decided to sit a while with his book, and just a drop of something before facing the two-hour drive back to Durrow. In front of that upstairs window, looking out on the street's lightly passing trade, Caniff had stood, extended a freckled hand to be shaken and said in a harsh Dublin accent that he'd do his best, and would be in touch in a day or two, by the end of the week at the very latest, and that the asking price was just taking the piss, but he'd moved him on it. Sure as shite reeked he would, once they were made sea since. 
An old shack of a house that had crumbled and turned to dust long before they got anywhere near to what they were wanting for it, and nearly the whole of the ten-acre stony hillside. A pasty man in a brown herringbone suit, fifty-ish but looking the worst for wear, misshapen because of a considerable paunch and with a few coppery ropes of hair desperately brill-creamed across the front half of his scalp and glasses that he kept pushing up onto the bridge of his nose. He studied his client openly, wanting to understand and waiting in vain to have it explained to him why anyone in their right mind would buy land out this godforsaken way when they could live almost anywhere else. But Jack had already given all the answers he was going to. Retired? No. I wouldn't call it that exactly. Left, more like. A thousand reasons and none. Because you were either cut out for that life, or you weren't. Breed, she said, when the silence turned awkward. Donovan you'll have known me as, but Leary now for years. And who knows, maybe someone else again, if the right offer ever comes along. He stared, helpless not to, and after a hesitation, felt his way sideways into the booth facing her, and hunched forward over the table. Good God, he said, seeing finally. The words jarring from his chest and throat. Breed Donovan, I don't believe it. How long's it been? Long, she agreed, and sucked the remnants of whatever had been lingering in the small glass that she kept in the curl of one hand. A lifetime, good as. And she gazed back at him, waiting. What are you remembering now, Jackie? Carrying my satchel along the road home from school? And taking hold of my hand when you thought no one was looking? And you letting me. Don't forget that now. Her hesitation, whether for effect or because the footing was for her too uncertain, filled him all at once with pity. No, she sighed, her voice reedy again. There's nothing I forget. How can I, when I never left? That's the mistake I made. One of them, anyway. My reminders continued to be everywhere. The glass in her hand tapped the table, and when she slid it in his direction, he reached out and rose with it, without thinking to ask what it had been. The bar was unchanged. Big, opaque windows whitewashing the narrow room. The counter, a simple boxy concoction of badly marked ply, filled the space's right side just as always while opposite all along the wall ran a single oak bench seat, some ancient pew that had somehow escaped its church. Again, just as he remembered, he took in the counter, where towards the far end a couple of men, heads bowed over half-finished pints, sat and arms reach apart, but with the buried silence of a distance measured in miles and it was as if his father had only just departed the scene, either for the toilet out back or into the doorway for a breath of air which he needed to do more and more often once the cancer had spread to his lungs, insisting to whoever might listen that the few minutes' break would make a difference, but needless to say, convincing no one, not even himself. When Jack set the glass down, the barmaid, who'd been standing, staring into space, 
lifted her gaze and considered him a long moment, wondering maybe if he was someone she ought to have known. Then she looked at the glass and refilled it carefully to the brim from a green bottle. And a drop of powers for me, he added, taking a twenty from his wallet and shaking his head no at the offer of ice or water. She smoothed it out and fed the old till behind her with his note. And he watched the back of her, slender as she was in pale jeans and a tight red sweater, and at the same time, in the mirror behind the bar, the reflection of her face and upper front, and put her age at probably no more than mid-forties. Glamorous and good-looking, the kind who'd bewitch, but with a tightness around her eyes and the corners of her painted mouth exhibiting boredom or, worse, downright despair. She lay his change on the counter rather than bunching it directly into his waiting palm, her long, heavily ringed fingers silently counting out the notes and coins. He watched the tally build, keeping count himself and feeling the book in his jacket pocket. Wars, decline and fall, which he'd been hoping to read. Very foolish. Suddenly, very effective. Back in the lounge, he settled again across from Breed, and she reached for her drink and held on to it. So, tell her then, why was he here? Was it to do with the Buckley place? She'd seen that it had gone up for sale, and he'd been on her mind because of it. The first time in Christ alone knew how long, even though that'd surely be the last place on earth he'd want to revisit, with what he told her all those years ago. He sipped his whisky. Nothing changes, does it, Breed? he said, once the heat of the fire began to abate. Not in the ways that matter. They can tear down walls, put new roads through fields, but home is still home, for all the good and the bad of it. He cleared his throat. You ask if I remember, but I remember everything when I let myself. The meadow up behind your grandmother's place. The stream we used to strip down and stretch out in on hot afternoons, telling ourselves and one another that it was just to cool off. The stones green beneath us. The water full of diamonds whenever the sunlight broke through the branches of the ruins. Or seeing my poor mother all those mornings, one hand pressed to her side and the other holding a cloth to her nose or eye or a split lip, while my father below in the bed slept off his drink. And I remember tying Buckley's shed. I hauled that stuff around with me, the same as everyone does, everyone who's had it or anything like. We can't but be marked by it. His left hand crossed his chest and tapped his right shoulder, and it's all of it just a turn of the head away. All at once he'd said too much. Before him Breed didn't move. In seeking some hint of the girl she used to be, he could find only ghosts. The one he'd kissed and fumbled with through all those summer days. The one who, on clear winter nights, to delay having to face the hill road home, lay down beside him on a haystack and stared up at the stars, sobbing quietly for things she couldn't yet talk about answering when he asked only that he might hold her hand and, if he didn't mind, tell her what it was he liked about her, what she had about her that was good.
He shook his head in answer to her inquiry about marriage and children, and she studied his face for further revelation, then shrugged and said that he was probably better off, because if he was anything at all like the rest of the world, then he'd have troubles enough of his own without trying to haul around the burden of someone else's problems too. She herself had wed young, she said, not knowing if he remembered or if he'd been already gone from the place by then. A few weeks short of seventeen, and already pregnant. Dan, the eldest of the Learys, who had ten years and probably a bit more on her, but who definitely wasn't the worst around, even if he didn't qualify as the best either. She'd been doing shifts in here, two, three nights a week, Riley paying her under the counter. And they got chatting somehow, and flirted a bit. And then one night late, he'd been waiting outside to walk her home. Except it wasn't the walk that interested him, she said, smirking despite herself at the memory. Well, what of it? There were some who tried to say he took advantage. And granted, I'd had a couple of gins after closing, but he hadn't exactly had to force the issue. Not much, anyway. I was young, but not an innocent, and I suppose I saw in him a way out of our house, if not out of Ballinraha having already learned well enough by then that you took what was going and made the best of things. We got there eventually, even if it did take my old man and two of my brothers with their threat of a rusty fixing to persuade him to the altar. And we didn't do badly, all things considered. Forty years nearly we had. There's few and far between nowadays who can say as much. Dan could drink with the best of them, of course and he might well have had his moments with one or two more along the way, but he worked hard enough when work was going. Gave me six babies, five that lived, all girls, nearly half of them good, and we got on, more often than not. He died five years back, and there's still not a night goes by that I don't think of him and miss the feel of him beside me in the bed. With so much having been exposed, only silence could reasonably follow. They drank without hurry, and when she at last set her glass down empty on the table, he reached out, gathered it with his own and started to rise. But she halted him with a raised hand. Not for me. I've a young one to see to. My Margaret can't be left on her own too long, she shrugged, as if to further explain, and Jack met her eyes and understood. I'm glad to have seen you again, Breed, he said meaning it but at the same time feeling a uselessness within the words. Those summer days took forever in passing, but didn't the years just fly by? God, the good we'd make of them now, if we could only have them back. We did the best we could, I reckon, she said, sounding in runes from so many shattering falls, but somehow matching the sadness of his tone with her own tired acceptance. Shall we none of us be who we are, if we'd spent the time any different. But she shrugged in acknowledgement of what she must have taken as a plea of sorts, a cry for help, however discreet. Was she remembering them in the meadow up behind her grandmother's, as he was, they taking turns exploring one another's secrets, their bodies in the green grass and wildflowers, gloriously young and with all the sunshine of years yet to be lived. Had she too held a place inside herself in the years and decades since for those sweltering afternoons, 
and built an altar to them in her heart. What stood awkwardly before her now, and what sat before him, gazing up into his eyes, were, if only by comparison, with how they'd been at their most perfect, crumbling remnants. Enough to taint any dream, and yet the past, the precious piece of it anyway, remained unsullied in his mind. Without him even having to close his eyes, she was still as he'd always kept her, daring with her smile as she lay back for him, and not the least bit shy in a kiss. Her lips so warm against his, the first time for him, and for her the first time she hadn't had to suffer by force. Her breath in his mouth, the rosy sweetness of the Hadji Bay's Turkish delight that he'd bought to surprise her with money earned, clearing bracken for Kelly, whose land sided on to Cotter's wood, and which she'd devoured, weeping with happiness. A lot of life had passed. So much water under so many bridges, so many diamond days, lost. The dark of the lounge concealed the turmoil that was threatening to show, and fighting to hold himself together, he moved out from behind the table and brought the glasses to the counter. The years didn't do you badly anyway, she said from behind him, waiting the words with a departing heft, and he turned to find her standing, leaning with one hand flat to the table for its support. I'd heard you join the priests. Something of a smile hung on, ghostly again, made for hesitation, but I knew that couldn't be even as good a soul as you always were, or at least that it couldn't work out. Because of the meadow, you mean? Standing, she looked very slight, like a tree in winter. She lifted her narrow shoulders and let them fall, not needing to add what was being left unmentioned. Can we do this again, do you think, Breed? He asked, after she turned and started to feel her way towards the door. I mean, sit and reminisce. Can I call on you once I'm back? Lifting his voice to a desperate pitch, not caring who might be listening, even as he understood that he'd probably already settled his mind on the question of making Balnraha home again. Yet asking anyway, for how truthful the words felt in the moment. So long, Jackie, she said, from the doorway as if she'd failed to hear him. Smiling, he thought and wanted to believe. Just before she stepped out into the day and was lost. Smiling and still holding on. There you heard Pat Short read the story Old Fires by Billy O'Callaghan. Next time on Spoken Stories, Nisha Dunbar reads the story Night on Earth by Colin Walsh. And you can enjoy all the commissioned fiction of Spoken Stories as they are broadcast on RTE Radio 1, on rte.ie forward slash culture and wherever you get your podcasts. From me, Cleon and Ian Loon, thank you for listening. <laughs>